You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In his book, The Early Church, Henry Chadwick says this about Roman policy. The Roman government was in practice tolerant of any cult, provided that it did not encourage sedition or weaken morality. Indeed, one reason for Roman military success was believed to be the fact that, while other peoples worshipped only their own local deities, the Romans worshipped all deities without exclusiveness and had therefore been rewarded for their piety. The god of the Jews, who had no images and no sacrifices except at Jerusalem, was harder for the Romans to assimilate. Although the Jews were monotheists and in theory understood that belief to invalidate all forms of religion other than their own, until the revolt of 66 to 70 AD, they were treated with marked toleration and under Augustus were granted privileges which, after an awkward crisis with Caligula, who wanted to set up his statue in the temple at Jerusalem, were renewed by Claudius. There seemed no necessary reason why the Christians should not also achieve toleration. They came into conflict with the state in the first instance by accident, not on any fundamental point of principle. In 64, a great fire destroyed much of Rome. Nero had made himself sufficiently unpopular to be suspected of arson and turned to the Christians to find a scapegoat. And Dr. Hagen, that's where I really want to kick off our episode today concerning Roman and imperial persecution of Christians. It is striking how Chadwick says that it wasn't through principle, but through pragmatics that persecution really began against the Christians. So could you speak to this fire in Rome and what historians think of it? What caused it? Who caused it? And did this posture of persecution by Nero against the Christians become the new de facto attitude and policy throughout the empire? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the so-called Great Fire of Rome, which takes place in 64, in the summer of 64 AD, uh, July actually of 64 AD, um, probably had its origins in a takeaway shop, um, a bakery of some sort, um, where food would be purchased for enjoyment uh, during watching uh, the chariot races in the Great Circus. Um, the Roman amphitheater, the Colosseum, uh, where gladiatorial fights would take place, was yet to be built. And so it probably was for this uh, bakery, probably serviced not only, you know, everyday interest, but also for that clientele that would swarm into the city to see, uh, swarm into the downtown area to see the, the chariot races. And a fire broke out in a bakery of some sort like that. And um, because of the rudimentary nature of the Roman fire brigade, uh, and there was a stiff wind blowing that night coming off the Mediterranean, um, the fire pretty quickly spread to large portions of the city. Um, much of the city was made out of wood. We, we tend to think of Rome, the ancient city, as you know marble. But large parts of it were wooden structures, wooden apartment buildings, three, four stories high, and uh, packed close together. And the, the, the stiffness of the wind, the inability of the Roman fire brigade to, to uh, bring the fire under control, meant that the fire spread pretty quick, quickly. 
Um, it eventually is brought under control by creating a fire break where an area would be burned. And so once the fire hit that area, um, it could go no, no further because it already was a burned over district. And um, then a second fire breaks out. And uh, according to the Roman historians who recorded this event um, and would have had access to primary documents that would have been in the Senate, um, the second fire broke out on the property of a fairly odious individual named Ophonius Tigellinus, a former horse salesman who had met the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, who had taken a liking to him. And um, the two were kind of collaborators in crime. And during the reign of terror that Nero exercised during the 60s after the death, the murder of his mother, uh, the death of um, uh, Burrus, the head of the Praetorian Guard um, as well, um, Nero made Ophonius Tigellinus the head of the Praetorian Guard. And so it looked very fishy that the second fire broke out on the property of Ophonius Tigellinus. And it went on to destroy another large portion of the city. So that in the final analysis, somewhere between two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the city was burned to a crisp. Significant numbers of people therefore killed, rendered homeless. Um, Nero was away. It was the summer. Most Roman aristocracy got out of the city in the summer. It was smelly, uh, disease-ridden, and uh, they would go to their various villas up and down the coast. And I think, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, Nero was down near, near uh, Naples. He comes back to the city and um, before the second fire breaks out. And so there is this rumor that starts to go around in the, in the wake of the fire that the emperor started the fire. And uh, giving substance to the rumor was the fact that Nero had sometimes boasted publicly that the, the, the city of Rome was just a disgrace, you know, as a, the heart of this empire. And he, he, he had plans, he said, to level the whole city, rebuild the entire thing out of marble, and name it after himself, you know, instead of Roma Nera or something like that, or Norona. And so there was, you know, thoughts, and they're probably not without some justification, that Nero started the fire. Recent um, historiography, number of biographies on Nero, I haven't read the recent, most recent one um, uh, that has come out on Nero. There's a very recent biography on Nero. But some of the more recent ones in the last 15 years have really argued that Nero was a much better emperor than history has given him credit for, that his reputation was besmirched by, first of all, Roman historians like Tacitus um, and Suetonius, and then they, Christians picked it up and he became a monster, um, you know, a prototype of the Antichrist. Um, and so there's been a revisionism that's taken place. And in fact, one uh, recent historian has argued that, you know, he, there's no way he could have started the fire. But this does have, I think, credibility. The, it's not simply Christian historians, but it's Roman historians uh, like uh, Tacitus and Suetonius who picked this up. Granted, they're writing, you know, 50, 60 years after the fact, but uh, they did have access to documents that we no longer have access to, and I'd see no reason to question their credibility. Um, so Nero's in a bit of a pickle. He has this rumor going around that he has started the fire, and if sufficient numbers of people believe it in the, the Roman elite, particularly the Praetorian Guard, he could end up like um, his distant relative Caligula, who got himself bumped off by the Roman Guard, 
uh, the Praetorian Guard after four years of megalomaniac rule. And uh, Nero's Nero's of the same. He's of the same cut too. He's a he, as I as I more colloquially describe him. He's a complete nutter. Um, and um, so he. He needs a scapegoat, and uh, Tacitus tells us that he arrested a number of Christians as a scapegoat and had some of them sewn up in wild, uh, the skins of wild beasts, savaged to death by dogs. Others of them fastened to crosses and crucified and burned uh, to serve as lights uh, during the uh, some festivities that he put on in the evening, um, one of which was him dressing up in a charioteer's uniform and uh, parading about in a chariot. And so um, uh, this sets a precedent. It's a local persecution, not without significance, because it's generally believed that, uh, and it's, I think it's Tertullian who is the first to identify this, although uh, first Clement, I think, does indicate the deaths of Peter and Paul in Rome. But it's, it's Tertullian, I think, um, and maybe Irenaeus, but I forget uh, whether it's in Irenaeus, but Tertullian definitely, who identifies um, Peter dying in this persecution so this local persecution is not without significance it brings about the death of the apostle peter and uh, really sets a precedent for the roman state um, as augustine you know would quote later if it doesn't rain it's the christians if the tiber overflows it's the christians um, if the harvest is bad it's the christians so christians become this the convenient scapegoat for all kinds of calamities and woes that the empire will now suffer over the next 300 years and um, uh, Christianity becomes illegal. And uh, so between uh, 64 and 312, 313, when the Edict of Milan is passed, Christianity is an illegal religion. And to be a Christian, to become a Christian meant the possibility of physical violence against your person, imprisonment, and maybe, maybe even death by martyrdom. Uh, persecution up until probably around either 202 with the reign of the Emperor Septimius Severus or 249 with the Roman Emperor Decius. Um, uh, be between 64 and 202, possibly between 64 and 249, uh, these these persecutions are all local. They're not empire-wide. Uh, definitely with Decius, we have an example of an empire-wide persecution and possibly also with Septimius Severus. But the, the Decian persecution of the 240s is definitely an empire-wide persecution where the Roman state basically declares war on the church. Yes, thank you for that, because that's a good reminder um, and, and correction. I know for me, early um, in my Christian life, I had assumed that to be a Christian in the early church was really a death warrant throughout the empire. Uh, but as you said, it was primarily regional in those in those early years, and the broader policy came along later. And speaking of kind of those local persecutions and local investigations, I want to turn to another figure who I know you talk about in uh, your classes when you teach church history, and that is Pliny the Younger. Who was Pliny, and what was his significance in the martyrology for Christian history? Yeah, Pliny is a, a fascinating figure. He's one of the the great uh, authors of the Silver Age of, of Roman literature. He's often his writings are often used in at least they historically would be used um, in um, a, a secondary school for you know readers of Latin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Um, for Christian history, his significance lies in the fact that um, uh, of his 10 books of letters, he, he prepared a, a wide variety of his letters for the press, and hence the use of his letters as a, his Latin letters as a, as a model of Latin grammar, etc. Um, one of them, uh, book, in Book 10, Letter 96, he describes his arrest and interrogation and subsequent execution of a number of Christians. And this was a letter that he wrote upon his being sent to the Roman provinces of Pontus and Bithynia in uh, what is now northern central Turkey. Um, he had been uh, the, the, in charge of the public works, the waterworks in Rome, making sure that water came in through the aqueducts, the variety of aqueducts that serviced the city, and then making sure that uh, human sewage and garbage were gotten rid of. Um, and had done his job so well that the Roman Emperor Trajan had promoted him and by giving him a governorship in the provinces. And so it was, he was shipped off to, to Pontus and Bithynia, which was a promotion, but not, you know, one has to wonder whether he thought of it as a promotion. Um, he gets stuck out there and it's the, 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 the provinces are in economic states, the state of economic collapse. And he decides to go around all the various major cities and comes to one city and finds that the, the cause of the economic uh, collapse to some degree in this city is the, the, the collapse of the sacrificial animals, the cult of the, the use of sacrificial animals in, in the various cults in the temple. Um, and um, this was because large numbers had either embraced Christianity or were listening to Christians and were attracted to Christianity. And so he arrests a number. A number would, were arrested on the, the betrayal by an informer and um, interrogates them. And it's a, it's a very interesting letter because it gives us the, one of the earliest glimpses by a, by a Roman official of their view of early Christianity. He viewed it as a superstition, harmless in many ways, but uh, worthy of punishment because when he urged the Christians who were arrested to give up their foolishness in his mind, they refused. And so whatever the, the, the crime that they had committed by being Christians, it was very evident that they had committed another, which was in the Latin term is contimicia, Contumacy is the word that we derive from it in, in English. That is an obstinate refusal to to obey the dictates of a, of a representative of the Roman state. And that was alone worthy of capital punishment. Um, and um, he interrogates two, two Christian women uh, who are known as, who he describes as uh, deacons. Um, and so he we, we get the, a very early glimpse of early Christian worship, um, the singing of a uh, hymn to Christ, as he, he says, as to a God, um, the prayers, uh, taking vows of commitment to, to various virtues, uh, not to steal, uh, always to repay loans, uh, not to commit uh, sexual immorality. Uh, the one thing missing in his description of Christian worship is the reading of the scriptures, but that doesn't surprise because there would be there would have been no comparative um, element in pagan religion, Greco-Roman paganism. Uh, nobody went to the temple and listened to a, a recitation of a portion of Homer, for instance, the Iliad or the Odyssey, and then a sermon on that portion. Um, you didn't have holy texts 
uh, in that sense. I mean, you had prayers that were read. They had to be read verbatim, word for word. But you didn't have holy texts that were preached on. Um, and so Greco-Roman paganism had no had no vehicle for evaluating this element of Jewish and Christian worship. And so it's not surprising he doesn't mention that. There would have been nothing in his mind that would correspond to it in pagan worship. So it's a very, very fascinating letter. And he writes it to the emperor because he's got questions about people who had been Christians and then denied it. They denied the faith. They apostatized or... Uh, had already denied the faith and were willing to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And the question he has in his mind is, if this if this religion is a crime, it's if it's being a criminal, um, should he should he punish should he punish these people? Those who stood stood fast for Christ, he he executed or sent to Rome if they were Roman citizens for them to be tried in Rome. But the big question in his mind was, you know, um, if this is if this is a, a punishable religion or punishable activity, should he punish those who once were Christians but are no longer? Uh, and really, the sort of thing he's wrestling with is, you know, if, if somebody gets arrested for being a serial killer and they haven't done a murder for 15, 20 years, it doesn't help their case to say, you know, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, I, yeah, I did that for a couple of years, really didn't like it. And uh, I've, not, I've done it for the last 20 years, you know, I kind of gave it up and well, that doesn't help. You know, it's it's one of those th- crimes of which there is no statute of limitations. And likewise here was, you know, in, in other words, is there a statute of limitations for being a Christian? And um, and the, we have the emperor's reply. Emperor Trajan replies in letter 1097 in the uh, collection of Pliny's letters. And he basically tells him, you, you shouldn't search out Christians. Um, but he's he's done right in... in um, uh, bringing out statues of the gods, having Christians uh, professed people who are being arrested to sacrifice to the gods and uh, curse Christ. Um, but Christians shouldn't be arrested. They shouldn't even be searched out. But if they're they happen to turn up, well, yes, that's the way to deal with them. All of which is all of which is deeply problematic, as Tertullian would later point out, because he said, okay, so if 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 if, if we're not to, if you're not to search us out. Um, but we're criminals. Why wouldn't you search us out? But if we're not criminals, uh, that you're searching us out, uh, then what, what's the problem here? And, um, and so there, there is very clearly a, a, um, a contradiction in the Roman, the Rome, the sort of legal advice that Trajan gives uh, to Pliny. But it's a very, very important letter because it is, it's clear witness to certain elements of the Christian faith in the early part of the second century AD. Yeah. In a previous podcast, you had mentioned the um, sacrifice to the emperors, the genius of the emperors and here the, the bringing out the gods to sacrifice to them. And in a later podcast this season, we're going to be talking about um, apologetics more specifically and broadly. Um, as we see its emergence in the early church. Um, but what are some uh, themes that come out in the Christian defense? Are there other accusations levied against them that they have to address aside from this treason or obstinance? Yeah. So there is the, yeah, there is the, the, the accusation that their Christians are atheists. They don't worship the gods. They don't worship the genius, of the emperor, but there's other accusations as well. Tacitus mentions they're guilty of ha- hatred of the human race. 
um, which is really kind of odd because of the heart of the Christian message is love for the human race. Um, I suspect that that charge is traceable back to the refusal to worship the gods. If you don't worship the gods, the gods are the ones who protect the empire. That's a very Romano-centric charge. Um, the Romans conceiving of themselves as being the center of the human race, the most most humane of all beings and the most human of all beings, the most civilized of all beings. And therefore, if you don't worship the gods who protect the empire, you must be wanting the empire to fall. And therefore, you hate the human race. Uh, two other charges that get raised are Christians are guilty of two horrific crimes, um, both of which are found in Greek legends and mythology. Um, one is uh, incest. And uh, the, the Oedipus Rex story by Sophocles is, is a horrifying story. It's the, uh, you may recall, but it's the story of a man who, a king, the king of Thebes, um, who has a prophecy given him that his son will kill him and marry his wife. And so he has the son taken out of the city um, when he's born, that he will be put to death. But the shepherd takes pity on him. And um, he ends up being raised in Corinth and has no idea of his background and is on his way on a trip um, and meets the king of Thebes on the road and in um, a fit of road rage because the uh, Oedipus uh, refuses to step aside. He ends up uh, killing the king and all his assistants, except for one who makes it back to the city. And um, he ends up marrying his mother, uh, doesn't know it's his mother, and he's killed his father. And uh, when all of this is revealed, he ends up going mad. And th that's a, this is a horrible, horrible, horrible incest. I mean, the, the Greeks and Romans were not, by and large, there were many in the Greek and Roman world who were not ashamed to engage in various acts of sexual immorality. But incest was one that was really was was completely taboo and so christians were accused of being incestuous uh and probably here it's a misunderstanding of the greek word agape which was um wasn't a word that was usually used in uh first century greek for love um it's almost as somebody said it's a word waiting for content to fill it um the more common word was philia um and then uh probably also the use of the term brother or sister would have facilitated the the only organization that tended to use brother and sister this is obviously apart from familial usage were the epicureans and that that wouldn't have been a, a good link either the epicureans were guarded by generally speaking by most philosophical schools in the first century ad as just basically uh, complete hedonists um in the negative use of that term and then secondly, uh, or thirdly, that so the charge of, you know, the, the atheism, hatred of the human race flowing out from that, uh, incest, and then cannibalism. And here it's clearly a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper, eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. And there is a, there is a, uh, a speech that we have a number of records about in the late second century of Fronto, a Roman senator, in which he accuses Christians on the floor of the Roman Senate of... At certain times of the, the, the year, um, gathering together under, under, um, under the cover of darkness at night 
and uh, seizing little babies and wrapping them up in pastry, uh, cooking them and stabbing them to death and eating them. Um, again, it's um, the, the, the whole idea of um, cannibalism was horrifying to the to the to the Greeks. I mean, part of the story of Odysseus, uh, the whole encounter with the Cyclops and the Cyclops eating Odysseus's men was just just this is this is just, this is inhuman. Um, or there is again another story of of a, of a of a brother king who of a king who um, was tricked into eating his children, um, and these are these are just horrifying tragedies and just horrifying incidents beyond the pale of human morality, and so Christians were depicted as monsters, and if you didn't know a Christian by by first hand acquaintance. Uh, you, you'd have heard these rumors that these, these people are not fit to live. And um, so it's not surprising then that there was significant violence and uh, hatred against Christians. Yeah, that really leads us into the last question for this episode, which is how is it that Christians are encouraged to respond? Um, you know, we, we've talked before about the deep roots and deep ties to the the Jewish uh, culture and Jewish society that these early Christians had. And I have in mind specifically about the resistance of the Maccabees and the Sicarii uh, when I ask this. Um, are Christians universally pacifists, or do we see any uh, armed resistance from Christians during this period? And how do, how do Christian leaders encourage uh, Christians to respond. Yeah, the question there is, uh, yeah, it's a it's a very uh, interesting and a very important question because it has all kinds of ramifications for the history of how you relate to persecutors, etc. Um, there is no instance that I can think of in these early centuries of Christians using violence against the Roman persecution or the Roman persecutors. Not one. Um, there's no tradition of taking up arms against the Roman state um, like the Jews had uh, with the Maccabees or the Sicarii um, or the Jewish revolt of 66 to 73 or the later one under Bar Chokhba in the 130s. There's nothing like that at all. Um, the, the, the standard approach is probably kept typified by the letter to Diognetus in uh, chapters 5 and six, particularly chapter five, persecuted, we pray for our, our, those who persecute us. Um, hated, we love them. And um, this this becomes a standard kind of trope or a standard uh, kind of uh, uh, way in which Christians responded to persecution. Um, it was by loving their enemies. And here the, here the model is Christ. Uh, Christ does not come to the cross, breathing out threats against his enemies. Uh, breathing destruction and fire and damnation against those who who slew him, but he comes with prayers for them. Father, they forgive them, for they know not what they do. And uh, you see this. I think you see this writ large in the Apostle Paul, who was a man of violence. Um, you know, Jewish, sorry, uh, Muslim Muslim fundamentalists would be well understood by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the, the 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 killing of the of, of apostates. And the killing of those who violate the laws of God 
killing the wicked is a is something that God takes pleasure in. And um, raised as a Pharisee upon the stories of the Maccabees and the stories of people like Phineas, the zeal of Phineas in the, um, the account where he, in the Old Testament, he um, sees a, a Jewish man laying with a Moabitess and takes a spear, goes into the tent and spears them both together as they're in the act of coitus. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's converted from that sort of violence uh, which he describes as this is what he was in First Timothy chapter 1, to a man of love. And this is very, very important. And um, uh, it's very important, I think, in our contemporary context. Um, there has developed a tradition, and it comes from the Reformation. It comes through uh, Scottish reformers like John Knox, and it, but it also comes through the French Huguenots of, of the possibility that if, if a lower magistrate um, authorizes resistance, violent resistance against a higher authority, then this is this is legitimate. But um, and this is because of the whole church-state interweaving that took place since Constantine. Uh, this becomes a tradition within the church of violent response to those in authority um, who are wicked and persecuting the church. But such does not exist in the first four centuries. Uh, first three centuries down to the early 300s and um, uh, in that I take them to be following the New Testament um, I see nothing in the New Testament that legitimizes uh, taking up the sword against um, the wicked or against persecutors Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.